Well, can you believe it? We have made it to our final week of 2 Timothy. Six weeks later, what a journey it has been. And really, I, I'll be honest, I hope it's challenged you as much as it has challenged me. Uh, I have found this book to be incredibly inspiring, incredibly challenging, and it has really made me look at my own walk in a new light. And so I hope it's done that for you as well. Now, before we dive in today, we're going to recap what we learned last week. Last week, we learned a few things. We learned, first of all, that the power of Scripture, that's what we talked about, right? The power of Scripture, the power of God's Word. The power of Scripture leads us to Jesus. We learned that Scripture reveals Jesus to us, right? And how we can have a restored relationship with God. Bible knowledge, as great as that is, does not save you. Doesn't save you. The only thing that can save you is repentance and faith in Jesus. But scripture says about itself, it says that it can make you wise for salvation. In other words, it tells you how you can know Christ personally. So the power of scripture leads us to Jesus. Secondly, we learn that the power of scripture anchors us to the truth. Scripture prevents us from drifting into error. It helps us to avoid uh, destructive behaviors, destructive beliefs, and it gives us a solid foundation on which we can build our lives. And then last week, we finally learned that the power of Scripture equips us for action. The Bible doesn't give us everything that we might want to know, but it gives us everything we need to know especially for our relationship with God and how we can serve him best. It gives us uh, the framework for understanding the world that we live in. It speaks to every area of our lives. Uh, I also wanted to mention earlier this week, Rich Kraft emailed me about some helpful Bible study resources that the Assemblies of God offers. Uh, first, there is our Bible quiz program, which does an awesome job of teaching kids the Bible, and discipling them uh, all the way from elementary school up through high school. I am a product of Bible quiz myself, and I cannot speak highly enough about Bible quiz. It was very instrumental uh, in my upbringing and in, in my relationship with the Lord. Uh, secondly, our junior Bible quizzers use something that's called the Bible Fact Pack, which helps them to learn the scriptures and some basic uh, Christian doctrine, but I can tell you uh, this for sure. It's great for adults too. I'm very serious. I, I, when, my, when my own daughter was in JBQ and junior Bible quiz, she would have those cards and she'd memorize those cards and I'd be learning right along with her. And, I, and oftentimes it's like, oh yeah, yeah. It would refresh me in some of those basic beliefs that we hold so dearly. All right. Uh, so if you're looking, even if you're an adult and you're looking for a way to deepen your knowledge of Scripture, it's an awesome way to do it. Uh, and third, there's what's called the Swordsman Initiative. Uh, the Assemblies of God has what's called the Bible Engagement Project. And the Swordsman Initiative is part of that. And it encourages everyone to read the Bible at least four times a week for at least 10 minutes each time. I think that's a great habit to get into, a great way to, to get into the study of God's word. It's not overbearing. Anybody can do it. 
It's not hard. So if you'd like to learn more about those things, I have no doubt that, that Rich and Marcy, I think Rich and Marcy are right up there. Hi, Rich. Hi, Marcy. Good morning. I have no doubt that they'd love to tell you about some of those things. Uh, Rich and Marcy are heavily involved in our Royal Rangers, our girls' ministries programs, and also our Bible quiz program as well. And I know they'd love to tell you about some of that. All right, so let's get started. How many here know that your perspective, the, ch- the things that, that you have chosen to focus on play a big role in how you respond to life. It's true. Your perspective on life has a huge impact. Focusing on the wrong things can cause you to miss out on the things that are really important. I want to give you an example this morning. Um, I'm going to show you three advertisements for Colgate Dental Floss. Three advertisements for Colgate Dental Floss. So here we go. First slide. Take a look at it. You're probably noticing something. Go to the next one. Okay. Go to the next one. Okay, go to the next one. Go ahead and go to the next one. Black slide. There you go. All right. So there's a reason I did it that way. What's the first thing that you noticed in each of those? He's got stuff in his teeth, right? Every one of those dudes needs to use the dental floss, right? Is something stuck right there, and your eyes are just drawn to that thing. And I, I don't know about you, but when I look at those, I, I immediately start checking my own teeth. Oh my goodness, did I get everything this morning? Oh, right? Now, here's what I want to do. I want to go back to the first slide. Can we go back to that first slide again? I want you to notice something. Did any of you notice that this guy here is actually missing an ear? Oh. Go to the next slide. Anyone here notice that there's some random arm up on that guy's shoulder? Go to the next one. Did anyone notice that this lady's got six fingers? (laughs) In each of these pictures, we were distracted by something superficial, and we missed the bigger picture, right? Folks, that's the point of this morning's message. (laughs) Although Paul has had several themes running through the book of 2 Timothy, I believe that we can summarize all of them in two words. And you'll notice I've said these words multiple times this morning. We can sum up this whole book with two words. Eternal perspective. Eternal perspective. As Christians, we must keep our eyes focused on the things that really matter. This is gonna become abundantly clear as we close out 2 Timothy today. With that said, I want to read together this morning. This one's a little bit longer, so I ask that you'd bear with me. Uh, If you have your Bible, you can go to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. If not, I believe it'll be up on the screen as well. I'll give you a moment to flip there, though. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Here's what Paul says. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word, 
Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They'll turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. For I'm already being poured out like a drink offering and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Do your best to come to me quickly. For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he's helpful to me in my ministry. I sent Tychicus to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and my scrolls, especially the parchments. Alexander the metal worker did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Priscilla and Aquila and the household of Onesephorus. Erastus stayed in Corinth, and I left Trophimus sick in Miletus. Do your best to get here before winter. Eubulus greets you, and so do Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and all the brothers and sisters. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you all. All right. So from the sound of it, as you hear all these personal remarks that Paul's making, you get the sense he really doesn't have much time left. We know from this series that Paul was sitting in a Roman prison cell waiting for what was going to be his execution. And in verse 21, you can sort of sense his urgency. He says, do your best, Timothy, to get here before winter. Now, the reason he says this is because traveling over the Mediterranean Sea was virtually impossible in the winter months. Ships couldn't sail because of the terrible storms. Uh, and if Timothy didn't get there before winter, then Paul might already be gone by the time that he arrived. But you can also see here that Paul's mind is clear. He's seeing with the eyes of someone who knows he's near the end. He's got clarity and he urges Timothy to keep an eternal perspective too. For Timothy, and for all of us, this means a few different things. First of all, an eternal perspective should drive us to readiness. 
An eternal perspective should drive us to readiness. Paul's opening words here show that he's thinking of eternity. He says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Paul isn't concerned about his earthly fate. You could tell, right? He's concerned about God who judges the living and the dead. Caesar doesn't bother him. Execution by beheading doesn't scare him. His concern is the God of the universe. What will he think of Paul? In the grand scheme of things, Paul's time in a prison cell was just going to be a brief moment. His execution would just be a heartbeat. But God's opinion of him would last forever. And he wanted to eke out every last opportunity that he could to serve God. And Paul knew that Timothy was at a bit of a crossroads. He knew that Timothy had been kind of timid up to this point. Would he continue to follow Jesus? Would the pressure of the world break him? So he gave Timothy some action steps to give him resolve. He tells Timothy, first of all, preach the word. Now we know from earlier in this series that uh, Timothy had been immersed in the scriptures from a very early age. He knew them well. He had a mom, he had a grandma who'd read them to him. But did you know that, that knowing something is really only half the battle? Actually, you remember G.I. Joe? Just came to me. <laughs> remember G.I. Joe? Some, some people my age. Now you know, and knowing's half the battle. At the end of every episode, <laughs> that's what the G.I. Joes would tell you. And it's true. Knowing something's only half the battle. After that, you have to act on it, right? It's no good just stalking away knowledge up here. You have to do something with it. And when you act on the scriptures, when you act on those verses that you've memorized, that you've committed to your heart, it gives you resolve. This is especially true with God's word, folks. Reciting in your mind God's word is helpful. It is. It's helpful. But speaking it out loud, I believe, carries extra weight. Don't believe me? Next time you're battling temptation or the next time that you're afraid, recite God's promises in scripture out loud with your mouth. It gives strength. It gives courage. It bolsters your faith. And I think scripture bears out the power of the spoken gospel as well. Paul says in Romans chapter 10, he says, faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word about Christ. In other words, the verbal proclamation of God's word is powerful, not just for the hearer, but for the speaker as well. Paul knew that by preaching the word, not only would Timothy be fulfilling his calling, but God would also strengthen his faith in the midst of it. Now, I really want to focus on Paul's next words here. He says, be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. I love this. This is great words here. The word for be prepared here is Ephistemi, Ephistemi, the closest equivalent in English might be stand by. You hear this used sometimes as, as a police or a military term. Suppose your, your uh, army was preparing for a battle. 
And you had a unit that was going to launch a surprise attack on a certain signal. We would say that they were on standby, right? So, so they're ready for action at a moment's notice. There's an urgency, there's a readiness there. And that's what Paul means when he says to be prepared in season and out of season. Be on standby. There's never a time when the Christian is off duty. Hate to break it to you. God can use you at any moment. The believer is always on standby, ready to respond to God's call at a moment's notice. Just this past Friday, a couple days ago, I was sitting in my office at the hospital and I was writing this message. I was actually right around this point, crazy enough, when a social worker showed up at my door and uh, she said, there's someone down in the lobby that's really upset, could use a chaplain. And, you know, I'm, I'm, that's me. I was the only one there at the moment. And I said, absolutely, I'll go down. So I went down and I spent... Uh, some time talking and praying with a grandmother who's, who's a two-day-old two granddaughter was fighting for her life up in the NICU. So I prayed with her. I spent some time with her. She was very appreciative. And after that, I went back to my office, and I'm like, okay, let me get back to, to you know, working on my sermon here. And I sat down at my computer to keep writing. And the next thing I hear <laughs> is the chapel door open. And someone is standing at the back of the chapel just sobbing, 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 sobbing. Now, if I had closed my door, no one would know that I'm there in my office. As far as I knew, this person didn't want to talk. Sometimes they don't when they come in, right? Sometimes they're just looking for a quiet place to sit and think. But as I sat in my chair listening to this person just gently sobbing there in the chapel, I could feel the Holy Spirit sort of poking me. Nate, 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 go see them. And after a few moments of resistance, I was like, oh man, how long is this going to take? I know it's selfish of me, but that's, that, that was the thought that went through my mind. And finally I said, okay, Lord, all right. And in the chapel was a young mother who was from Peru. Uh, I talked to her and she said that her child was waiting for surgery, but back at home, her father had been very, very sick and she had just gotten word that he had passed away. She was just broken, just totally broken. He had told her before he passed, he had told her a few days before, he said, no, you stay there, you be with your daughter, she needs you, you be with my granddaughter. But she was, of course, devastated because he had passed while she was up here in the States. And so I, I, I took a few moments. I talked to her about God's love. I prayed for her daughter's surgery. I prayed for her family back at home who was grieving the loss of her dad. And when I finished, she did. She had tears in her eyes. And she just said to me, thank you. You have no idea what this has meant to me. And, and folks, please understand me when I say this. I do not say that to boast. That's not my purpose in telling you any of that. To be honest, there was really nothing earth-shaking about what I did. I was just there. Right? I just happened to be in the right place at the right time, and I could have ignored it. In fact, I thought about ignoring it. Lots of people come into that chapel, but I could feel God nudging me, and I believe he had placed me there for that moment. I had to be obedient. And that's what it means to be prepared in season and out of season. God may call us, into action at a moment's notice. 
It might be to comfort someone who's hurting. It might be to meet a need or to tell someone about Jesus or to tell or to call somebody to repentance. You never know when your words to a broken individual might make an eternal difference in their life. And so my question is, are you willing to answer that call? Are you willing to be on standby? Second thing that Paul tells us is that an eternal perspective should drive us to faithfulness. An eternal perspective should drive us to faithfulness. Paul says in verses three and four that the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they'll gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They'll turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Paul knew that after he and the other apostles were gone, that there would be plenty of false teachers who were gonna be eager to swoop in and cause problems. It's not out of the realm of possibility that maybe God gave Paul a glimpse of some of the things we'd be facing today, some of the false teaching we'd be facing today. What's fascinating, though, is that Paul says these false teachers have, I like the the term he uses, itching ears. What's true about an itch? When you've got an itch, let's say you've got an itch. Some of my guys who work, you know, who work in, you know, uh, the shop or, or in a factory, you wear what? Boots, right? You wear those heavy steel-toed boots and you lace them up and usually they're laced up to here, you know? And you ever get that itch down at the bottom of your foot? <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh, you're like, you're, you're grabbing a pencil or anything you can find and you're digging it down there. You don't want to take off your boot. But it's, oh, you're desperate to scratch that itch, right? There's an urge there. Scratching that itch is all you can think about You have a one-track mind. You just want to satisfy that urge. False teachers and their followers have that unscratchable itch. They want to hear things that make them feel good about themselves, feel good about their sin, things that scratch the itch of their guilt. And the fact that they want their ears scratched is telling They don't want what they hear to penetrate any further than their ears, right? In other words, they don't want anything going deeper to engage their brains. (laughs) They just want their ears scratched. Think about the false teachers that we discussed a couple of weeks ago. Remember, we, we talked about, I called them progressive fundamentalists, right? They subscribe to the idea that people are perfectible through human effort by the causes that they support, And they make themselves feel better by promoting a false righteousness, a self-righteousness. They glorify behaviors that are in line with their own sinful desires, and they call those desires good and healthy. They've twisted the Bible in a grotesque way to support those behaviors. And that's precisely what Paul means when he says they have itching ears and will gather other false teachers around them. These people stand in the giant echo chamber of social media or popular culture, and they pat each other on the back for their opposition to biblical principles. Not only have they turned away from the truth, but the truth is opaque to them. 
They've so hardened their hearts that speaking truth to them just falls on deaf ears. But you, Paul tells Timothy, you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry, knowing that the sufferings of this life are temporary, hold on to the truth. Preach the truth. It might be easier right now to compromise, to avoid the disdain, the hatred of the world, but don't do it. Don't do it. The world's momentary displeasure is nothing compared to what God has in store for those who have served him faithfully. Timothy was a pastor, and so this applies most easily to to us as pastors. It can be tempting for us in ministry to modify what we preach from this pulpit to avoid flack from the world. We're tempted to pull our punches when things get a little too spicy. (laughs) But it's just as applicable, this principle is just as applicable to those of you in the pews as it is for us up here. Paul says, discharge all the duties of your ministry, except when the opposition is fierce. No, <laughs> we cannot hesitate even then. I was, on a, uh, I was on a missions trip to South America some years back, and on our off day, we got to visit a waterfall, really beautiful location, and you could jump off of the edge of that waterfall into a pool that was down below. But close to the edge of that pool were some jagged rocks, right? You had to be careful because If you hesitated when you jumped, rather than a safe landing in the water, you'd dash yourself on the rocks, maybe break a leg or even worse. When you jumped, there was no room for hesitation. You had to be all in. You had to fully commit. And this is Paul's point here. God is not looking for half-hearted followers. He's not. Not because he doesn't love you regardless. He does but because half-hearted doesn't cut it. Faithfulness to the gospel requires full commitment. There's too much at stake to behave otherwise. And then finally, number three, an eternal perspective should drive us to perseverance. An eternal perspective should drive us to perseverance. In verse six, Paul gives us some, some profound imagery. He says he's already being poured out like a drink offering. What's that? What's a drink offering? In the Old Testament, a drink offering was a cup of wine that was poured around the altar while the sacrifice was being burnt on top of the altar. There are some Bible scholars who think that uh, wine drinking was a Sabbath Activity. It was a sign of rest and, ce- and celebration. Plus, wine was something that took a while to mature, and so it was savored very slowly. So it's interesting that Paul uses this imagery. His own life, his own blood was about to be poured out like that cup of wine, like the drink offering. Not only that, he was about to enter the Sabbath rest that God has promised to everyone who serves him faithfully. He was going to be able to soon savor the rewards of his service. And that's why he says the time 
for my departure is near. Like a ship that's about to set sail, Paul was about to say farewell to this earthly shore and sail to the heavenly shore. And then Paul gives us his most memorable statement of all. You know, the title of this series has been Famous Last Words, and it applies to the whole book, but I think it really applies to these next verses. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but to all who have longed for his appearing. Some just incredible imagery here. I have fought the good fight. Those words, I have fought the good fight, could also be translated, I have struggled in the good contest. He could be using here an illustration of a soldier in warfare. That, I think that's what most of our minds go to. But he could also be picturing a wrestler who has persevered against his opponent. Whatever he means, he's saying that he has seen God's mission through to the end. He has finished the race. And what's interesting about this metaphor is that there's only one winner in a race, right? Usually. But Paul doesn't say he won the race. He only says that he has finished the race. In the course that God sets out for us, he's not interested in winners per se. He simply wants people who will give their all to cross the finish line. He wants people who will persevere in following Jesus to the very end. We all run a little bit differently. But what God's concerned about is that you get to the finish line. We get some examples of runners here in verses 9 to 16. And I don't know that Paul necessarily intended to tie the people that he mentioned into this metaphor, but I'm going to do it. Paul talks here about Demas. He says Demas had abandoned him because he loved the world. Demas had fallen out of the race. He gave up. He talks about Crescens and Titus and Luke and Tychicus. They were all still in the race. They were all still running. He talks about Mark. Now, Mark is an interesting story. I love the story of Mark. In the book of Acts, he's known as John Mark. John Mark. In Acts 15.38, we find out that Mark had deserted Paul and Barnabas on one of their missionary journeys. He just, he gave in, he threw in the towel and he went back to Jerusalem. Later, now apparently there must have been some sort of, you know, um, reconciliation to some degree, but Barnabas wanted to take Mark with them later on and Paul didn't want anything to do with it. He was upset because he felt like Mark had dropped out of the race. He wasn't faithful. He wasn't persevering. And so it's interesting to see here at the end of his life that Paul's relationship with Mark had been restored. Paul even says, he's helpful to me in my ministry. At some point, Mark had gotten back up, dusted himself off, and rejoined the race. He also talks about Alexander the metal worker who had opposed Paul and caused him all sorts of problems. Alexander was on the sidelines obstructing the runners. Right? Paul gives Timothy all of these examples, almost like he's saying, what are you going to do, Timothy? Are you going to finish this race? Are you going to drop out? Or are you going to run hard? And this morning, I would ask the same question of each of you. How's your race going? 
And you don't have to answer me out loud, but in your own mind, how's your race going? Are you running hard? Have you slowed down to a walk? Have you dropped out of the race entirely? Now is the time to check your progress. Paul says next, I have kept the faith. Paul had guarded and proclaimed the truth that had been entrusted to him. And he was urging Timothy to do the same. And finally, he says that the reward for his perseverance would be the crown of righteousness. Now, in the ancient Olympics, a a laurel wreath was awarded to the victors of a race. This crown is probably the image that Paul had in mind. It was a symbol of honor. It was a symbol of approval. And the Greek here is a bit uncertain. We're not sure if Paul means that righteousness is the crown that God gives or if he's saying that the crown is rewarded for living righteously. Either way, the point is that God's approval was what Paul was striving for. The laurel wreath would wilt and fade, and the victors of an earthly race would eventually be forgotten. But God's approval, the crown of righteousness, would last forever. The benefits were eternal. And that crown of righteousness wasn't just for Paul. Nope. He said that it was for everyone who has longed for his appearing. That word longed is the word agapao, agapao. Anyone ever heard the word agape? You remember what it means? Love, right? Agape is love. What Paul is saying is not just that for those who have longed for his appearing, for those who have loved, passionately desired his appearing, God will award his righteousness to those who love his appearing to those who love the thought of Jesus's return, who are excited for his second coming. Folks, what do you love? What do you love? Are you enamored with the things of this world? Does earthly success or material things or wealth excite you? Do you love the approval of People, if your sights are set on those sorts of things, I can promise you this, you will not persevere to the end. You're not going to do it. I don't say that to browbeat anybody. I say that in love. If your sights are set on the wrong things, you will not finish this race. If you sit, if you set your eyes on those things, you're going to get distracted The race is not going to seem worth it, and you will eventually drop out. So what I'm telling you this morning is fix your eyes on eternity instead. Fix your eyes on eternity instead. An eternal perspective should drive us to readiness. It should drive us to faithfulness. It should drive us to perseverance. I'm going to ask Joel to come back up this morning. The Bible gives us a glimpse and a taste of what eternal life looks like. And, and folks, I want to say this morning, forget the, the, the ideas that the world gives you about what eternity looks like. Toss it out the window, all right? It has nothing to do with sitting on clouds and playing harps. It's not an eternal church service, all right? 
Those, those things, those images, that's stupid. I'm just gonna say it, that's stupid, right? Those kinds of images do an incredible disservice to what eternal life really is. We know it's a place where sin and sickness and suffering and death are no more. We know that. We know it's a place where we find perfect contentment. It's a place where the presence of God is a tangible reality. But folks, I can also tell you this. Our human minds cannot conceive what that truly means. Our experiences of love, our earthly experiences of love and peace and contentment and joy and even excitement are based on poor earthly substitutes. We don't really know what those things are. Paul says it's like we're looking into a cloudy mirror. We don't see it clearly. We don't really understand what real joy and real love are. It's not just more of the same. That's why Paul also says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. If you think you've experienced some of those things here on earth, just you wait. (laughs) You ain't seen nothing yet. One of my favorite Christian authors outside of the Bible is C.S. Lewis. And one of the themes that he wrote about over the years was the subject of joy. He said that joy, and and not just mere happiness, okay, but pure joy is something that we only get glimpses of down here on earth. That's because we live in a world broken by sin. But every now and then, we get a taste of it. He says it this way. He says, dance and games are frivolous, unimportant down here. For down here is not their natural place. Here they are a moment's rest from the life we were placed here to live. But in this world, everything is upside down. In a better country, heaven, It is the end of ends. Joy is the serious business of heaven. Jesus offers to us real, actual joy. And it can only be found in surrender to him. That's why we love him. That's why we serve him. Because we know that nothing on this earth compare to what awaits us on the other side of this life. Folks, keep an eternal perspective. That's Paul's hope for you, and that is my hope for you. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me this morning? I want to close our time in prayer today. You may have listened to this message this morning and you have perhaps been convicted by some of the examples that you heard. Maybe you place yourself in Timothy's shoes. You're kind of uncertain what you're going to do next. If this race is really worth it. Maybe you've put yourself in Demas' shoes and you have dropped out of the race. 
you're not even trying anymore. Maybe you're in John Mark's shoes and you've dusted yourself off and you're trying again. Maybe you're not in the race at all. Maybe you're hearing for the very first time this kind of talk. You're hearing about the love of Jesus for the very first time. Wherever you're at this morning, I want to pray for you. This morning, if you've done some introspection and you've said to yourself, I'm not running like I should, I want to run hard. I want to run with readiness and faithfulness and perseverance. I want to get to that point and I need strength to do it. If that's you this morning, I just want you to slip up a hand with every head bowed, every eye closed. Okay, I see those hands. I see those hands. Okay, all right. Thank you. Those of you this morning, perhaps you have never even joined the race. You don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You haven't surrendered your life to him. You haven't accepted what he did on the cross for you, giving his body and his blood, taking your place so that your sins could be forgiven. You haven't put your faith in him. You haven't joined the race yet. If that's you this morning, I want to give you an opportunity to respond to. I'm not going to embarrass you. I would just ask with every head bowed, every eye closed, if that's you and you want to surrender your life to Christ right now, just slip up a hand very briefly. Anyone in this room this morning? Okay. All right, I see that hand. Anyone else? Anyone else? Okay. First, I want to pray for those who have never made that commitment to Christ. And I would ask that as I pray this prayer, I want you all to pray it along with me, whether you know the Lord or not. Say it with me. Heavenly Father, I admit that I'm a sinner. I admit that I have failed you. But I believe in what you've done for me. I believe that you sent your son Jesus to live a perfect life to die on the cross for my sins and rise again so that I could live forever. I confess you now as my Savior and Lord. I ask that you'd forgive me. I turn away from my old life and ask that I could be a part of your family. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for letting me join the race. And I'm going to run hard for the finish line. In Jesus' name. If you prayed that prayer this morning, welcome to the family of God. Now those of you this morning who said, I am not running like I should, I want to pray for you too. Heavenly Father, I pray for those who feel tired who have not run the race the way that they should, who've dropped out, who, are, who, are, who have slowed down to a walk, who've got their eyes distracted by other things, things that don't really matter. Lord, I pray that you would give them eternal perspective. Help them to recognize that this life is just a brief moment. It goes so fast. And the older we get, the faster it goes. But Lord, I pray you'd help them to look to the other side. Help them to see that on the other side of this life is joy that they've never known, happiness that they've never known, love that they've never known. We've gotten just a little taste here 
But when we get there, we'll see it fully. So Lord, I pray that for those who are feeling tired, who want to re-enter the race, I pray that you'd give them their second wind. I pray that you would walk with them. That their passion, their heart would be filled with the love of Jesus. That they'd set their eyes on you. Father, I pray this for everyone in this room this morning. Thank you for this incredible book that has taught us so much. Lord, I pray that as we go from this place today, that we would indeed keep that eternal perspective. We thank you for it. And we pray it in the name and in the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And everyone this morning said, amen. All right, God bless you folks as you go. We look forward to seeing you next week for Palm Sunday.